With great power comes great responsibility. And in today's ever-connected world, some of the greatest power lies in data. In the Data Plus event series, alumni join a group of Waterloo experts to explore this topic. This episode is a recording from the first event in the series, Data Plus Climate. You'll hear a panel of alumni share how they use data to know that our climate is changing, to understand that humans are responsible, and to come up with solutions that reduce emissions. Keep listening. Hello, good afternoon, everybody. It is my pleasure uh, to be here acting as the moderator for this Data Plus Climate session um, from uh, Alumni Relations. And when Alumni Relations reached out to me to ask uh, if I would moderate this session called Data Plus Climate, I absolutely jumped at the chance. I'm, I'm so excited to have this discussion and to uh, hear and learn from our fantastic uh, alumni who are all working as uh, experts and practitioners in the field of climate science and data science. And these are two of my, my favorite topics. I'll, I'll start with a, a brief anecdote. Um, I teach a course on climate modeling here at the University of Waterloo in the Department of Geography and Environmental Management. And uh, I was uh, speaking with my students this term actually and trying to communicate uh, the absolutely massive size of the data archives that are generated from uh, climate model simulations that contribute to the most recent intergovernmental panel on climate change. And we did some digging uh, on, online and found that there's about 20 petabytes currently of climate model output uh, sitting on servers across the world. And these are simulations that are being analyzed by climate scientists and those interested in impacts and adaptation to find out how the climate is going to change and how that's going to impact society and ecosystems. And just to put that into context, 20 petabytes, I also looked up how much uh, storage space Netflix uses for its entire catalog of uh, streaming content, and that's about 60 petabytes. So we've got about one third of the amount of storage that uh, Netflix uses uh, just in our, our most recent set of, of climate model outputs. I am delighted to be able to introduce our expert panelists who are going to uh, speak to you today and to uh, uh, have a discussion on questions related to data and climate. And the first panelist that I would like to introduce is uh, Dr. David Bailey. And uh, Dave works at the National Center for Atmospheric Research um, in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Dave is a, a proud graduate from the co-op program in, uh, uh, in math at the University of Waterloo. So he has a, a BMath from Waterloo and uh, a PhD in uh, astrophysical, planetary and atmospheric science from the University of Colorado. And Dave is an expert in uh, numerical modeling of Earth systems with a particular focus on uh, the impact of climate changes on sea ice. So welcome, Dave. Thanks, Chris. Um, and I will also acknowledge the fact that I'm on the lands of the Arapaho, Ute, and Cheyenne peoples um, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, so I'm very fortunate to work here up at the Mesa Lab um, overlooking the city of Boulder and the plains of Colorado. Um, so I thought it best to maybe sort of describe what I do um, with some slides. Um, so I think they're coming in, hopefully. There we are. So um, imagine, you know, 
here we are on planet Earth. Um, I didn't put a you are here sign, but I think you recognize North America. Um, and then we take the planet Earth and um, next panel, um, we develop equations of motion, um, equations for the thermodynamics of all the fluids on the Earth. And this includes the atmosphere, the ocean, um, the sea ice, which I'm particularly interested in, but also um, even the land ice. Um, and so then um, to solve these equations, as I'm sure some of you know, we discretize these and you show the next panel, please. Um, and we take the opportunity to try to discretize these on interesting grids. Um, so the sphere is a little bit of a challenge. And so we develop um, uh, different grids to get around the converging of meridians near the North Pole. Um, the first one is a cube sphere grid. So we turn the earth into a cube. Um, and I know the flat earthers are probably excited about this, but, um, and in the second panel, um, especially in ocean models, um, we rotate the North Pole, just the grid North Pole um, into land. You can see here it's um, approximately in Hudson Bay. Um, and then once we've discretized these equations, then we put them on a large multiprocessor computer, like the one we have in Cheyenne, Wyoming, next panel. Um, so you can see here, this is just the outside of it with some fancy art on it, but this is a many, many core machine. And so we take these discretized equations and we break them up into pieces and farm them out to different processors across the machine. We of course have communication between um, the pieces of the earth. Um, and ultimately it is a serial problem and that we can't parallelize, but we can at least parallelize in space, um, both in the horizontal and in the vertical. Um, and then um, what happens is we run these model simulations. We run hundreds and hundreds of years of model simulations. And as Chris suggests, we, we generate terabytes of data just from our model alone. And uh, next panel, um, we output this in a format known as NetCDF. Um, this is a, basically a binary format, but it has within it some metadata and some um, material to make it a self-describing format. And you can see here that the native grids, um, so the first example is for the cube sphere. And so when you unroll it, it kind of looks like a cross almost, um, but um, that's what it essentially looks like when it comes out on these NetCDF files. So if you just look in the NetCDF file at the raw data, this is surface air temperature. Um, and then similarly for the ocean grid on the panel on the right here, um, this is the stretch dipole grid where we have moved the pole into Greenland and you can see Greenland stretched all the way across. Otherwise it looks pretty normally like a lot long grid, but then it's just at the top of the domain where Greenland stretched across. Um, so then the idea is we take this output, uh, we use sophisticated post-processing tools and analysis tools. We do time slices and all sorts of things. And then if you go to the next slide, we can piece this all together um, into questions to try to address, if you want to go ahead and play that animation, um, to try to address different problems that we're looking at. So this is a seasonal cycle of sea ice in the Arctic. That's the white area where you're also seeing sea surface temperature. 
um, in the rest of the globe. And then if you'll notice, you can see the Kurashio current off the coast of Japan here. That's a signature in the SST. And then you see those little streaks. That's actually cyclone activity and the imprint on the sea surface temperature from Pacific cyclone activity. Um, so, I mean, this is just a one sample, one year, but we can uh, run numerous experiments to try to interpret different aspects of the climate and the Earth system. So with that, I'll hand it back to you, Chris. Thank you very much, uh, Dave, for that great introduction and uh, super cool uh, video showing the output and what uh, modern Earth system models can produce. Um, I'd like now to introduce our, our second panelist, Dr. Ray Nasser, who is a, an atmospheric scientist working with Environment and Climate Change Canada. Ray is, uh, is an atmospheric chemist uh, by training and, and uh, has a PhD from the University of Waterloo in chemistry. And Ray is uh, really uh, heavily involved in um, satellite missions um, that are, are monitoring various atmospheric constituents, including ozone. And I'm delighted to have uh, Ray here to speak about his, his work. Over to you, Ray. Okay, thanks very much, Chris. So I actually did my bachelor's of science and a PhD at the University of Waterloo. And today I work in the Climate Research Division of Environment and Climate Change Canada. Our division works on many different aspects of climate change from analyzing temperature records, uh, forecasts of future climate using climate models, as well as analysis of greenhouse gas observations. Now, if I could get my first figure up on the screen there. Greenhouse gas observations today can be made in many different ways. They could be made from the ground, they could be made from aircraft or even from space using satellites. And collectively, these observations can be used to get a better understanding of the carbon cycle and the answering questions such as how much CO2 is being emitted from different regions, for example, different cities, or how much CO2 is being taken up by vegetation or the oceans. So the figure here shows uh, various different types of observations over an urban area. The example shown is Los Angeles, but one can, th one can think about how it would be much more difficult to deploy a lot of these uh, more traditional measurements over a large area such as Canada. Um, in my work, I lead the Canadian efforts on the analysis of satellite data of greenhouse gases and that involves the use of existing observations from satellites, such as international missions coming from uh, NASA, the Orbiting Carbon Observatory series of miss missions, which is the example that's shown in that figure. And we're also considering possible improvements to existing satellite capabilities. In particular, we're looking at a Canadian mission concept called the Arctic Observing Mission which would provide enhanced measurements of greenhouse gases, meteorological variables, as well as air quality observations over northern regions with an emphasis on Canada, as well as the Arctic. So these various different um, measurements, whether they're of greenhouse gases or other parameters that are important to science, 
can now be made from satellites and they're really changing our ability to understand processes in the climate system. Thanks. Back to you, Chris. Wonderful. Thank you, Ray. And uh, I would now like to introduce our third and final panelist. Uh, Dr. Andrea Scott is an associate professor in the Department of Systems Design Engineering at the University of Waterloo. Uh, Andrea has a, a bachelor's and a PhD uh, in mechanical engineering from Waterloo and um, uh, has uh, you know, developed a, a research program with a, a strong focus on, on remote sensing and uh, using data to improve models, and in particular, focusing in Arctic regions on, on sea ice and satellite measurements. Over to you, Andrea. Great, thank you. Um, so I have a, a bit of a shorter introduction. Um, so uh, as uh, Chris said, um, I did my uh, bachelor's degree and PhD in mechanical engineering. And after that, I had the opportunity to go to Environment and Climate Change Canada and do post postdoctoral research on CI state assimilation, uh, which was a great opportunity. And I was able to learn a lot about um, sea ice and also the data simulation, which is an optimization uh, problem uh, at that time. And that was my first introduction to remote sensing. And I think I was really fortunate to have that experience because it really opened up my eyes to uh, the, just the amazing world of remote sensing, um, which is now sort of uh, an area that I do a lot of uh, my research on. So I work on, I, I guess I often say I work at the intersection of data science and uh, environmental monitoring. And this intersection is really founded on a, a foundation um, of physics, really, because as a mechanical engineer, of course, I studied the physical systems for many years. So when I'm looking at data, I'm never thinking of it as simply numbers um, or patterns. I'm always also thinking about how the numbers and the patterns are really related uh, to the underlying uh, physics uh, of the system. Uh, thank you. Um, back to you, Chris. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much uh, to all three of our panelists for being here today. I'm, I'm super excited to hear uh, what you all have to, to say on uh, the topics of data and, and climate. Um, we're all in our, our uh, panel format now, I can see, and that's great because what, what I'm going to do, I have uh, a couple of questions that I'm going to pose to the panel. Um, we're also uh, accepting questions uh, via the chat from our audience, and we welcome uh, any questions uh, that you have for, for our panelists today, and I'll try and get to those uh, as we go through the session. So to kick off our discussion, um, I'd like to think about climate change. And in particular, how we use data to understand that climate is changing. And, and to do more than that, to do the, the, the process of attribution of change and to ask, how do we know that humans are responsible for that change? So I'd like to invite Dave first, if you uh, would, uh, to, to comment on that, please. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I have a slide here um, for this as well. Um, so, but the basic idea in a climate model is we can run many, many realizations um, of the 20th century. Um, we can run realizations of past climates. Um, we can use the models 
but they're forced by the best observations that we have available, at least. So greenhouse gas forcings, aerosol forcings, solar variability, all these different aspects that we feed into the climate model. And then we allow it to run freely internally so that it generates its own internal variability. And so you can see here on the panel on the left, um, the blue curve is sort of our best estimate of the observations over the last century um, that's based on station data and other observations from around the globe. It gets a little dicey as you get towards the beginning of the century. We had a lot less observations back then. Um, but here, the black curve is a uh, um, an average of all of our realizations that we've done in the 20th century. And you can see here, the gray curves are just sort of that spread. Um, so say we run 20 realizations of the 20th century, um, the hope is that that sort of spread in those ensemble will capture the observations and that, that will give us an idea of how at least we understand how the climate has changed over the last century. Um, and then how do we understand that we're responsible for this? Um, well, then we can actually do these interesting experiments where we, we call them single forcing experiments and we remove or we add back in just a single forcing, like a greenhouse gas, or like the volcanic aerosols over the last century, or the solar variability. Um, and you can see it with the panels on the right here that basically that the only way we can reproduce the temperature change over the 20th century, that especially accelerated around 1980, the only way we can do that is with greenhouse gases. And you can see that the experiment with everything but greenhouse gases actually cools over the latter period. Um, and that's largely due to the aerosol forcings. Whereas the experiment where we have only greenhouse gases, you can see that that has a, an upward trend in it. So basically it's this is the way that we can ascribe the main forcings that have happened and they're due to man-made um, greenhouse gases. So I'll let the next person take that. That's great. Thank you, uh, Dave. Um, Ray, did you want to comment on this question? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, I think Dave gave a great introduction because he focused on temperature data. And of course, the temperature data is really fundamental to identifying that um, climate change is there. The figure that you could see on the right here is showing greenhouse gas data. And in fact, this is um, a very important, in fact, po possibly one of the most important graphs involving greenhouse gas data in climate science. The data record that's shown here goes back to 1958, and it was initiated by Charles David Keeling, and he had the foresight to think we need to measure greenhouse gases as accurately as possible, and he set up two measurement stations back in 1958, one on the mountain Mauna Loa in Hawaii, and another one at the South Pole in Antarctica, and so those observations are shown in this figure. The black dots are observations from Mauna Loa and the dark red are observations from the South Pole. 
And there's actually quite a lot of information that we can derive from this figure. The first and most obvious thing is that greenhouse gases are increasing. And you could see that curve going from the lower left to the upper right. But the second one, um, if you look closely, is that the Mauna Loa Hawaii observations have a seasonal cycle. So greenhouse gases, while they're typically increasing during the summertime, there's a local minimum and then they increase again um, later on in the year in the fall. And this, um, if you haven't guessed, is driven by the Earth's vegetation. And so we see that in the Northern Hemisphere where there's more land and more vegetation, where it's taking up CO2 in the summertime during the growing season and releasing it more in the fall and winter. So, so that seasonal cycle, um, the natural seasonal cycle is obvious there along with this increasing CO2, which is related to human activity, um, the burning of fossil fuels, putting that CO2 in the atmosphere. The reason that we can confirm that that increase in CO2 is the result of human activity actually relates to a subtle point if you look at the figure, and that's the fact that the, the mean between the Mauna Loa observations and the South Pole observations is actually increasing over time. The lines are starting to spread apart in the later years, and this tells us that the with higher values in the Northern Hemisphere compared to the Southern Hemisphere, that that must be where the source of CO2 emissions is coming from, the Northern Hemisphere, where the majority of the world's nearly 8 billion people live, and the um, use of fossil fuels in the Northern Hemisphere is elevating those levels, whereas there's a lag time um, for the Southern Hemisphere to, to reach the same level. And so, this is, I think, is a great example of um, a very rich data set that tells us a lot about processes in the climate system. Wonderful. Thank you, Ray. And I would invite Andrea. Would you like to comment on this question? Yeah, great. Thank you. I think we've had two um, great introductions. And uh, I'm going to talk just a little bit more about sea ice um, and specifically about a quantity called sea ice concentration, uh, which is the fraction of a given area that's covered uh, in ice. And um, there's um, the, the picture there on your top right is a picture of the sea ice concentration over the Arctic. And uh, these data um, we get from uh, the passive microwave observations, which are observations of uh, the radiation from the earth in the low frequency part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And we have these data every day, uh, and we've had these data not quite every day, but, but um, most days over the last 40 years. So we can use these data to figure out, for example, how much of the Arctic is covered um, by ice and from year to year and day to day, and to get a time series. And, and we use that, for example, to show that there's a decreasing trend in the ice cover with time. But Using these data to monitor the ice concentration is a little problematic, possibly, because, um, you know, as all data sources are, they're not quite perfect, right? So no, every data source, of course, has errors and, and, uh, and whatnot. And so to get the ice concentration from these data, we use something called retrieval algorithms. And what you see in the bottom right there are the different lines are different ice concentrations from different retrieval algorithms. 
And the font is a little small, but on the bottom axis is the ice thickness. And you can see that for the thin ice, um, that the, the curves all kind of go down. And these measurements were taken in a region um, where from looking at a different kind of data, the, the scientists knew that the ice concentration must be very high. But in this area, these, these um, algorithms uh, produce ice concentration that is, is uh, significantly underestimated. So it's very biased. And that's uh, happening just because the data, for example, they cannot, it's difficult for the signal to, to tell apart the difference between an area of low ice concentration and an area of thin ice. So as the ice cover becomes thinner in the Arctic, um, we need to be sort of mindful of these kinds of uh, issues with using the data, for example, and the fact that, um, you know, they may not, the, the retrieve algorithms that you can sort of um, get easily uh, from the internet uh, themselves, you know, have some, uh, some uh, deficiencies, for example, you could say. And then on your bottom right, you can see another example, for example, uh, that, that that image is taken in on the Canadian East Coast, uh, where the, the atmosphere is very moist. And again, the moisture in the atmosphere creates some uh, challenges with the signal uh, to try to differentiate between what is ice and what might actually be atmospheric moisture. And uh, those algorithms are often um, trained or, or designed to work better at higher latitudes. So we see this, this problem frequently on the Canadian East Coast, but again, as the higher latitudes um, transform into a state, you know, a more maritime state, um, as we call it, where uh, the ice covers um, a little bit reduced and the thickness is also reduced, um, then we may, you know, see these issues kind of come up more uh, at those higher latitudes. Uh, back and back to you, Chris. Thanks. Thank you. That's great, and and I think really. Uh, underscores the importance to um, weather and climate science of the availability of satellite observations, right? Particularly in remote regions like the Arctic. I mean, uh, I think it's fair to say that you know, as climate scientists before the satellite era, before sort of 1980, when regular, reliable, um, you know, quasi-global satellite observations became routine, um, you know. Climate, climate science was 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 limited to in where we could actually see change occurring, and that's you know the, our ability to to open our eyes and and have data from all of those um, important parts of the world. I think is a is a real revolution in in the science and the discipline, and it's enabling so much more uh, science to be done. Are there any uh, follow ups or additional um, discussions from from question one? I guess I guess one thing that uh, occurred to me as well as as you were talking, Andrea, was was the importance of the Arctic, and uh, I think it came up in in Dave's um, uh, slides as well, and and just the fact that, that the Arctic is a is a bellwether, right, in terms of um, you know, where we expect change um, to occur first, where we expect it to occur fastest, and so our monitoring um, and use and, and gathering of data in in the Arctic in particular. Uh, is of critical importance. Okay, um, so I'd like to move on then to to a, a second question. Um, having discussed, you know, this idea that we have established that, that climate change is is happening, that humans are responsible through these these attribution experiments, um, I want to uh, switch gears and talk a bit more about solutions or potential solutions, and um, I want to get the the thoughts of the panel on how uh, climate and weather data 
the output of models from satellites are being used to support the development of solutions to the climate emergency. Um, why don't we uh, change the order a bit in the second the second round? Um, Ray, would you like to take a stab at this first? Sure. sure. Thanks, Chris. So I think there are various different ways that climate data can contribute to climate solutions. And in particular, with satellite observations of greenhouse gases, which is the, the field that I work in, um, I'll start with one example here, which is showing CO2 observations from space. My research group was the first to apply satellite observations of CO2 to quantify emissions at the scale of an individual power plant. And so the figure that I'm showing on the right here is showing um, a similar example of these observations over Europe's largest power plant in Poland. And that uh, power plant is shown in the inset in the upper right. But the CO2 observations themselves are the pixels which are shown overlaid on a background in Google Earth. Um, but of course, the Google Earth imagery is also coming from satellite data, the Landsat satellites from the US and the Copernicus satellites from Europe. So what this image is showing of the CO2 observations is uh, CO2 observed from the NASA Orbiting Carbon Observatory 3 instrument on the International Space Station. And you can see that red blotch, which is elevated CO2. It's a CO2 plume that's coming from a large power plant in Europe. The wind direction is shown by the small arrows um, in pink. Uh, it's pretty hard to see, I guess, but basically the, the plume is being blown in that direction. And this can actually be observed in space from a single satellite overpass. And so if you have detailed information about the CO2 as shown here, information about the wind direction and wind speed, then one can try and derive emissions that are coming from the power plant at that instant in time. And, and we've demonstrated this um, at, at the research approach now, but basically um, countries, space agencies, and, and um, countries responsible for reporting their emissions are now looking at the possibility of monitoring emissions at the scale of an individual power plant using this type of data to improve our ability to report emissions under the Paris Agreement. But furthermore, if you could apply this type of an approach rather than at the scale of a facility like a power plant, but to an urban area, then you have a better understanding of where emissions could be coming from different parts of the city. If you track emissions over time, you can have a better understanding of if different policies that are implemented to reduce emissions, if those are working, how well they're working, and so on. There, there's a, a saying, you can't manage what you can't measure. And so it really um, flows from the fact that if we have much better data on our emissions, then hopefully that will lead us to better management of emissions and reducing emissions on the path to net zero in the future. Back to you, Chris. Thanks, Ray. Wow, that's fascinating, uh, those images and, and the uh, ability of remote sensing to detect uh, the, those emissions on, on very small scales is, is really impressive. Uh, Andrea, would you like to comment next on this question about solutions? 
Sure. Um, so in the CIS realm, there's a few different things that we use data for to start to work toward um, develops, developing some solutions. And uh, one, one idea sort of builds on what Dave was talking about earlier, which has to do with using models and using the data um, to force these models or to, to actually come up with what we call a better state estimate. So the state estimate is um, basically tells you, you know, for example, at a given time and location, what the air temperature and the wind speed and the humidity and the ice concentration, the ice thickness and all of those different um, variables are. And those are the prognostic variables in the model that we're sort of um, moving forward in time. And so to develop a weather forecast, for example, uh, observational data is merged with this uh, state estimate um, every six hours, for example. And um, that kind of sort of resets the model a little bit because it does tend to drift a bit away from uh, reality. And so, so when I was at Environment and Climate Change Canada, we worked a bit on, on this problem for the sea ice forecasting. And so these uh, forecasts that can come from these models are really useful uh, in different areas, not only in terms of um, the weather forecasting, but for example, also in shipping, uh, which is sort of, there's increased pressure, of course, with the reductions in the ice cover and the ice thickness to open up certain you know areas uh, for more shipping, which of course leads to you know, a lot of sort of questions about, um, you know, the people that need to use the ice as a transportation platform or uh, are using the ice or are reliant on the mammals that, you know, use the ice uh, for their um, habitat. And I also um, work a little bit on a project uh, that um, has to do with uh, identifying small openings in the ice cover. So these small openings are called plinias. And the plinias can form, um, they're sort of small openings in an area that should typically be covered in ice, but they form, you know, because of uh, overlying conditions. So for example, if you have an area where you have a very strong offshore wind, then that wind uh, pushes the ice away. And then because the atmosphere is very cold, then the ice reforms uh, fairly quickly. But then again, the wind sort of tends to push it away. So there are some areas where we have these, what are called these um, reoccurrent uh, plinias. And in this region, in your bottom right, which is in Hudson uh, Bay, there are these islands called the Belcher Islands. And in this area, the tides are very significant. And so the tides uh, bring heat up to the surface, and that creates these sort of small polynias or openings in the ice. Um, and they're just, they're very hazardous. You know, um, the people that are living there uh, need to transport on the ice, uh, for example, for hunting and things like that. And uh, these polynias don't show up in exactly the same necessarily the same place or time or um, whatnot over the year. And sometimes they're covered in a little light snow cover and things like that. And so this is the type of small object that we try to detect, for example, um, using some data-driven approaches. And then um, finally, in your bottom left there, um, just the offshore engineering applications, as we know, there are, there's also increased pressure, uh, for example, to, to have um, offshore engineering. And in particular, or I guess maybe the only, the example that comes to mind is on the east coast of Canada. Um, you know, we do have some installations and there's this ice tongue that comes down from uh, Labrador. And uh, so the Canadian Ice Service uh, monitors that that region, for example, uh, just to, to make sure that that's not, for example, interfering with that observation. So, and they do that using um, data. Uh, so using uh, high resolution satellite data, for example. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Andrea, for those uh, great examples uh, from the Arctic and, and using satellites again. Uh, Dave, I'd like to call on you uh, for question two about solutions. Sure. Sure. Um, 
I also have one slide for this, but essentially we can use the climate models as a test bed for this sort of question. Um, and the idea is that we, it's our only tool to look into the future. <laughs> you know, as far as I'm aware, current observational technology can't really see into the future. So it's the best tool we have. Um, so the way we do this, and this sort of gets at another question that was coming up from the audience, um, is that there's uncertainty about how things are going to go forward into the future. Um, and so the way we do this is we have model uncertainty. Uh, so we have a lot of different models trying to pose the same questions. We also have scenario uncertainty. And so this just says, how are greenhouse gases, how are aerosols, how are other um, forcings in the climate system going to change as we move forward um, through the 21st century? Um, and you can see here, this is all just with our model at NCAR, the CESM, but you can see all these um, slightly older CMIP-5 experiments with representative concentration pathways, um, but then the newer IPCC protocol is the shared socioeconomic pathways. Basically what that's saying is how are humans going to act over the next hundred years, say? Um, and what you see here is that regardless of all these different possible scenarios, things look kind of the same in terms of the temperature change over the next 40 years or so. You know, they don't really depart very much by 2040. It's after 2040 where you begin to see these really big departures. Um, and so here, this is the sort of worst case scenario where we do nothing, uh, the so-called SSP 585 or RCP 8.5, um, and then various levels of mitigation where we start to try to do something about reducing our emissions. And you can see here that if we take the most aggressive stance where we reduce our emissions, we're still gonna see probably a half degree warming, um, but then we can at least keep it a little stable maybe um, after 2040, say. And then on the right, um, you know, I think we're getting to the point now where mitigation is helpful, but I don't think it's going to be quite enough. And so then we're going to have to think about the possibility of some sort of geoengineering. Um, that gets into a whole other moral ethical discussion. But again, in the model framework, we can we can do this without any harm to the planet. You know, we can play around with levels of stratospheric aerosols injected up there. Um, and we can see that we could maintain a cooler climate if we did this, at least in a model framework. Um, in terms of actually doing it, that's a whole other, <laughs> you know, logistical discussion and whatever. But at least in the model sense, we can at least pose these experiments to try to understand how they could potentially mitigate the changes. Thank you so much, Dave, and, and to the other panelists as well. Um, I did want to ask a, a quick follow-up on uh, on the topic of uh, models. Uh, and Dave, I, I think I, I'll call on you uh, in particular on this one. And this is uh, motivated by a question from the audience. 
uh, as Dave alluded to earlier. And, and it relates to the fact that um, you know, there's not just one climate model, right? So, so we have these different models that have been developed at different institutions and climate modeling centers, government labs around the world. So I suppose the, the question is, you know, why do we have different models? <laughs> and um, are there, you know, certain models that have particular strengths and weaknesses? Like, shouldn't we just use the one best model? What, what are your thoughts on that? Right, right. I, I mean, I think it's driven primarily by the IPCC. They want to see a number of different potential future climates um, so that they can make the most informed decisions. Um, and yes, each of the models has their own peculiarities and subtleties that makes them a little bit different. And I think the question also asked about data sets too. And in fact, there are little peculiarities between each data set too. Um, but I think by more information is just better. You know, because we, we have that uncertainty moving forward. We don't really know the path that we're going to be on. Um, and so it's best if we can account for the worst possible case by hopefully covering the spread, I guess, um, is the way to do it. And so the IPCC has said we want all these modeling centers around the world to run these different future scenario experiments to try to give them the best information to provide their report. So That's great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow, like, rate, subscribe, whatever your podcast player lets you do. We've got more event recordings to share in the coming months, plus more episodes that explore alumni career journeys. And hey, if you loved all the talk about data in this episode, maybe you'd like to join us for the next event in the series. Data Plus the Arts is happening in September 2022, and you can register to attend virtually or in person now. Just follow the link in the episode description. Uncharted Warriors in the World is produced by me, Meg Vanderwood. Aju Chow is our editor. Aju and I are both alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.